Well, good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here, and it is uh, great to be with you. This morning, we are going to be looking at uh, Philippians chapter 1, and we're going to begin in verse 12. And so if you have a Bible, I encourage you to have that open before you. If you don't have a Bible, uh, you can follow along on the screens in front of you. The passage will be projected there. But we'll be looking at just a few verses in Philippians chapter 1 this morning. And I have to tell you that, um, uh, like many of you this past week, uh, I personally have felt a whole host of emotions. Uh, I felt sadness, I felt anger, I felt discouragement and disappointment, and a whole host of other things, right? Those have been the things that have been um, filling my heart and my mind, and I'm sure like many of you, the same. We, what we saw on our TV screens on Wednesday and what we heard out of the mouths of our political leaders were at times discouraging, to say the least. And as I've thought about the events that have transpired this past week, what we've seen, what we've heard, I've thought, like, what, what do you say about these things? Like, what can we say? Like, what, how, how is it that we are to respond? And not, not just how is it that we are to respond, generally speaking, but as believers, as Christians, how do we respond? What do I need in this moment? What do we need? I mean, there are so many things that have been said and many things that shouldn't ever be repeated again. There are many things that could be said and many things that will be, but, but I realize that at the root and at the foundation of what I need is not, uh, well, it's not anything that this world can give. You see, what I am in need of ultimately is hope. Hope not in the surety of our institutions. Hope not in political leaders. Hope not in some new way of communicating through social media. Like that, that is not the kind of hope that I am in need of. What I am in need of and what we are in need of is a hope that is only brought from the Lord. What we are in need of is a hope of the gospel. See, the gospel is the good news. It is the message that Jesus has come, he has lived, he has died, and he has risen again. And he has done those things so that our sins, my sins, would be forgiven. He has done that so that he would take a broken world, a broken place, and he would bring healing, he would bring restoration, that the groaning of creation would one day come to an end because of him. That is what he has done, and that is the hope that we are in need of. That is the central message of the Bible. Christ's hope. It is the central message of the Bible, and it is the message that we need to cling to. And friends, providentially, as the Lord would have it, that is the central message of our passage this morning. And so let us read Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 12, and let us hear how the gospel moves Paul in a time of suffering, in a time of distress. It moves Paul to rejoice. Let's read. Philippians chapter 1. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. 
The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that as we come to it now, that you would take the things that are distracting our minds, the things that are tugging at our hearts, you would remove those things so that our minds would be focused on you. Our hearts would cling to your goodness and beauty. Father, we are in need of your help so that we can see your goodness and beauty, so that we would be your people and live as your people in this world. And so, Father, begin now a work in us. Stir in us a new affection so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would please you, our God and our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. It's kind of hot up here, so I'm going to take off my coat. Um, so I know y'all don't like send me emails about that stuff, but just letting y'all know. Okay, so, uh, so as, I've been thinking about, um, as I've been thinking about deeper things of life, Oftentimes, I find myself, when I am thinking about the deeper things of life, be it uh, purpose or vocation, love or joy, I found that oftentimes it's helpful to turn to the philosopher Calvin and Hobbes. Um, (laughs) Some of y'all know who I'm talking about, uh, that wonderful comic strip about this little boy Calvin and his his, uh, best friend, the tiger Hobbes. And there's, this, there's a particular one that I was uh, reading just the other day where Calvin and Hobbes on a Sunday afternoon, they're out in the woods and they're playing, and they're playing by a creek. And they don't have a care in the world. It's a Sunday afternoon. Monday is still far away, right? They don't have to return to school. Mom's not calling them in for dinner, right? No cares. It's just fun and enjoyment. They're getting wet and dirty and just having a wonderful time. And despite all the joy that they're experiencing, despite all the rejoicing and all the fun, Calvin groans. He sighs and says, each moment, each moment, I should be able to say, I'm having the time of my life right now. I should be having the time of my life right now. And he says this not just that sometimes he should be feeling this or on certain occasions, but every moment he should be able to say, I am having the time of my life right now. And as I read that, I started to wonder, I started to think about my own life and started to question, like, when have I ever been able to say I'm having the time of my life? There's so few they're so, uh, so, so minor, they're so far apart, right? I mean, how many times have we honestly said, I'm having the time of my life right now? I mean, there are countless times in our lives when joy and rejoicing and fun, that, that those aren't the words that we would use to describe what we're experiencing, right? I mean, think about Paul, the Apostle Paul. He knew about disappointment. He knew about discouragement. He knew about trial and tribulation. I mean, think about where he's writing from. We know from last week that Paul's writing from prison, right? That he's under house arrest. He's guarded by a Roman soldier. He's held captive and he's awaiting trial. And his imprisonment is unjust. And so surely in this situation, Paul is not thinking and is not going to say, I'm having the time of my life right now, right? 
No, he's not going to say that, but look what he does say. He says, I rejoice. Those are the last words of our passage, I rejoice. How is it that he can say that? Like, why, in his circumstance, can Paul say that he rejoices? Well, Paul rejoices because there is something far deeper, something far significant in his life, at work in his life, than his mere circumstance. Paul says, I rejoice because of the gospel. Specifically, because of the way the gospel is advancing. Did you see it in verse 12? He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So think about what Paul is, what's happened to Paul. Not just his imprisonment, but all that's happened to Paul. Later today, or maybe this week, you can go and read 2 Corinthians 11. And there he lists out all the different things he's been through. And in 2 Corinthians 11, he tells us that, that he's been lashed 39 times on five different occasions. He's been beaten with rods three times. He's been stoned and shipwrecked in danger from rivers and robbers and his own people and from Gentiles and in the city and in the wilderness. He's experienced danger at sea and from, from false brothers. He's experienced toil and hardship, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst. He's been without food, in the cold, and exposed. I mean, talk about trial and tribulation. Difficulty and distress. And yet, he can say, I rejoice. And just as a side note, let me just say, Paul isn't rejoicing because of pain. And he's not rejoicing because of suffering. He's not a masochist. He's rejoicing in the midst of suffering. You hear the difference? He's not joyful because of suffering, but he's joyful in the midst of suffering. And that slight and minor difference it makes all the difference in the world. Because the Bible doesn't ignore our pain, and the Bible doesn't ignore our suffering or pretend that pain doesn't exist. No, we can be honest with it. We can be honest about trial. We can be honest about distress and difficulty, and we can still rejoice. I quoted a philosopher named Calvin. Now let me quote a theologian named Calvin. The theologian, French theologian John Calvin, he once said that joy doesn't mean that believers are entirely free from all sadness, but that the ground for joy will be greater so that no dread, no anxiety, no grief will swallow them up. He's saying that, that our, our anxiety, our grief, our difficulty, our sadness, that those things are real, and the ground for our joy is greater than those things. And the ground for our joy is the gospel, the advancement of the gospel. You see, Paul sees his imprisonment as being used by God to advance the gospel. That's what he says in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So the imperial guard was a group of soldiers, 9,000 of them. And some of them would have had the duty, the responsibility of guarding Paul. And so that meant they were literally shackled to him. They would be chained to Paul. And as they were shackled to him, they would have heard Paul's conversations. And maybe they, the guards themselves, would have engaged with Paul. And they would have learned why he was in prison. 
and they would have heard about Jesus. That's what he's saying, right? It's spreading that, that the whispers of why Paul was in prison, that the whispers of the gospel, that, that they were spreading throughout the entire imperial guard. Now, we don't know how many of them really heard, and we don't know how many in Caesar's household believed, but we do know that some did. And we know this because in chapter 4, with Paul's concluding remarks to this church, he says, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. So you all remember a saint from last week. A saint isn't someone who's morally perfect. A saint is a follower of Christ. That's what the Bible calls us. And what Paul just said is that there are saints in Caesar's household. Think about that. Okay, Caesar in this time, like, he wasn't too fond of Christians. There was true and real persecution that was occurring, and yet the gospel was spreading. The gospel was moving so that guards and soldiers, so that, so that uh, slaves and freemen, so that maybe even members of Caesar's own family were hearing the gospel and believing. Can you imagine that? That in the seat, the, the most powerful place in the entire Roman Empire, the gospel was advancing. That's why Paul can rejoice. He can rejoice that even in the midst of his difficulty and through his distress, the gospel is moving forward. And y'all, that's just like God to do that, isn't it? To use difficulty for his purposes? I mean, we see it throughout Scripture, don't we? In the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis. Do you remember Joseph? He said to his brothers, he said, the evil that you intended, he called it evil, and it was, right? Trying to do away with him, selling him off, pretending he was, right? What the evil you intended, and it was evil, God intended for good. God is doing that. He's using the evil and the wicked. He's using the distress, and he's using it for his own purposes. We see it with Joseph, we see it with Paul, and we see it most clearly with Christ. Because it is through Jesus' death and it's through his suffering on the cross that blessing comes. That goodness and life come. And so we need to ask ourselves. We need to ask ourselves a question that maybe many of us don't want to ask. What if, okay, what if 2021 is worse than 2020? Like, how are we going to respond? I mean, hasn't, I, mean I'm, I know January 1st, 2021, we all woke up and probably took a deep breath, and we're like, whew, glad that mess is over. But what if that was clean? Like, what if it's only going to get worse? Because let's, let's just be honest, 2021 hasn't started much better. And what if it's just going to keep going downhill? And, and I'm not just talking about getting worse for the country, I'm not just talking about getting worse for individuals, but what if it gets worse for the church? Like, what if, what if in 2021 the church begins to experience actual and legitimate persecution? How are we going to respond? And what if in the midst of that the gospel still advances? Will we rejoice? Or will we simply grieve and lament the loss of our freedoms? Because this is how, oftentimes how the gospel goes forward. This is oftentimes how the Lord uses 
circumstance and situation to move his gospel forward. I mean, think about places like China and Iran and Iraq, right? Where, where the church is actually exploding in the place of China, right? Under severe persecution, where Muslims who are being displaced from the Middle East and are sent out as refugees, they're hearing the gospel in refugee camps in situations and circumstances they would have never asked for, and yet they hear the gospel and they believe and they come to faith. Is that not worth rejoicing over? What if that would come our way? Would we rejoice? That's what Paul does in the time of suffering, in the time of difficulty. He rejoices because the gospel is going forward. The gospel is advancing, and it's not just advancing through his life, it's also advancing through the life of others. Did you see it in verses 15 through 17? He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. So what we see here is that there are these two groups of people. So Paul, while he's in chains, he's preaching the gospel in this prison, in this place of imprisonment. But there's these two other people in this area. There are some who are preaching the gospel and they're doing it out of love and partnership for Paul. But there are others who are preaching the gospel out of selfish ambition. Okay, now notice what Paul says about them. He doesn't say that they're heretics. And he doesn't say that they're apostate. And he doesn't say that they're preaching a false or different gospel like in Galatia. As one theologian put it, these people who are preaching from selfish ambition. They're not anti-Jesus, they're anti-Paul. And so what many people think is happening here is that they were preaching to garner a following for themselves, to, to detract, to take away from Paul's ministry. And so they see the apostle Paul in jail and they think, this is my chance. Now I can build my following. I can take away from him. This is why Paul says that they're preaching out of selfish ambition. So how would you respond in that? Okay, you're the pastor. And this is what's happening. They're stealing your people. They're taking them. Right? Like, what, how would you respond? Like, how would Paul respond to that? Well, look what he says in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now listen, Paul's not disregarding motives. We know he's concerned about motivations. Right? We know that he's concerned about what motivates us and, and our heart's desires. We know this because of other letters that he's written. He's not saying the end justifies the means. No, no. instead what he's declaring to us, what he's showing us is that in this moment, in this time, his ultimate concern is that the gospel would go forth. And because it is, he will rejoice. And I have to tell you, this is way easier said than done. So most of you, many of you know that I didn't grow up in a Christian home. That I didn't grow up with the Bible or church being an everyday part of our lives. Right? We, we didn't read the scriptures and we didn't pray prayers and we never went to church. And whenever we did, I made fun of my parents for taking us. But my junior year of college, I became a Christian. I heard the gospel. And the Lord took hold of my heart and he changed me. And a profound transformation occurred in my life. And, and what's amazing is that God's grace didn't stop with me. 
that after I became a Christian, both my parents and my younger brothers started going to church. And they started hearing the gospel. And they started reading their Bible. And they believed. And they came to faith. I mean, they came to faith. And so they called me, and I remember they're telling me about how they came to faith and how they're going to this church and how they're hearing the gospel. And you know what went through my mind when they told me that? I'm ashamed to admit it. What went through my mind were all the secondary and tertiary differences I had with that church. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying theological precision isn't important. It is. But in that moment, my family had been dead and were now alive. They had been blind, and now that they could see, and they were hearing the gospel, and and instead of rejoicing that they had heard the gospel in a place where the gospel was not proclaimed, like I'm not talking about the Bible Belt, y'all. I'm talking about a very secular part of Canada, a place where I grew up where I didn't know a single Christian, and yet they were hearing the gospel in that place. They were hearing the gospel in that place, and all I could think about was not rejoicing that they were once dead and were now alive, but all I could think about was that this church didn't have a robust view of covenant theology. And all the ways that they misinterpreted this verse or that verse. And on and on. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that, I rejoice. So y'all, how do you feel about that church down the road that is preaching the gospel, that loves the Bible, that is proclaiming that salvation is through Christ and Christ alone, that Jesus has died and he has risen again and he's coming? How do we feel about that church that is preaching that message and is growing faster than we are? That's reaching that segment of Roanoke that we're not where people are coming to faith. Do we envy them? Or do we rejoice that the kingdom is advancing? Do we rejoice that the church is growing? Do we rejoice that the gospel is going forth? Whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. You see, we rejoice at gospel advancement, and we rejoice at gospel boldness. Now, let me just say, This point is a lot shorter, so if you're looking at your watch, take a breath. (laughs) But the Apostle Paul tells us in verse 14, most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Do you hear that? There's a saying in baseball that hitting is contagious. The saying comes from this uh, strange occurrence that happens oftentimes in a baseball game. The, one of the teams they, in, in this game, they, they seemingly can't get a hit. They, can't, they, they couldn't hit water if they fell out of a boat. Like we have all these fun baseball analogies that we use and phrases that we talk about for how bad they are, how they cannot hit. And inning after inning, they keep swinging and missing and they hit these little dribblers out in front of home plate and they're easy outs until about like the seventh inning. And this one little hitter comes up and he bloops single into right field. And that little bloop single, that little Texas leaguer, it leads to a sharp single up the middle. And that sharp single leads to a a line drive into the gap. And before you know it, this team who couldn't buy a hit can't do anything but hit. Because hitting's contagious. 
and so is gospel boldness. See, Paul says what has happened is that as he was proclaiming the gospel in these circumstances, it has emboldened others in their proclamation. His boldness is contagious. And y'all know what this is like. After I became a Christian that junior year, that summer, I spent the entire summer at Myrtle Beach with 150 other college students. We lived in a hotel for eight weeks, 150 college students, and the reason we were there was to grow in our faith. It was to learn to read the Bible and learn to pray and learn about doctrine and build community and, and get this vision for taking the gospel back to the campus, and we were there to learn how to share our faith. And it terrified me. It was the last thing I wanted to do. I didn't want to go talk to someone about the gospel, right? Because what if I go and I don't know what to say? And I don't have answers to their questions? And, and what if they mock me or make fun of me or reject me or whatever it might be? Like, I didn't want to do that, right? Do, do you all know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, of course you do. <laughs> and so I remember the very first night that we were there. This was my first night in Myrtle Beach. One of the guys that I had just met, he's like, let's go walk along the strip. Right, like right in the center of Myrtle Beach. And so cars are driving by and they're thumping their music and girls are on the corners and people are on the sidewalks and they're yelling different things at one another. And we're just walking along and the guy I'm with, he starts to walk to this guy who's standing by himself, perfect stranger. And as soon as he started to walk towards this guy, I knew what he was gonna do. I started to get a little anxious started to get a little nervous, and I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty confident I remember this correctly, that I literally, like, took a step back from my friend. <laughs> like, I don't know if I want to be with this guy right now. And he started sharing the gospel. And he started talking about how Jesus had changed his life. And he had ta started talking about how our only hope in this world is in one who has died and risen again. And as I was hearing and I was watching this guy who I had just met a few hours ago share the gospel, an amazing thing happened. You see, my fear was replaced with courage. And my anxiety was replaced with hope. And my worry was replaced with boldness. You see, seeing and hearing the gospel proclaimed with love and with care, with concern for a person's soul, it made me want to proclaim it. It gave me resolve that the gospel was far more important than my worry or my fear or my, my concerns or my anxiety. You see, in that moment, I could rejoice in the boldness of my friend, but I could also rejoice in the gospel boldness that was starting to build in my own heart. Because, y'all, when we hear people sharing the gospel... When we hear of people hearing the gospel and we hear of lives being changed and transformed, it makes us want to participate in that story, doesn't it? To be proclaimers of that truth, to see the gospel advancing, to be bold with the gospel even in times of difficulty. I mean, that's what Paul's telling us, isn't it? That's what we've been hearing throughout this whole passage. That God is using even distressing situations, even times of trial, even times of trouble to move the gospel forward. And y'all, when the gospel advances and when boldness spreads to declare the gospel, in that we will rejoice. And so friends, today, let us begin to pray. Pray that that would take place here.
that that would take place through us. I don't know what tomorrow will bring. But y'all, it might bring distress and it might bring difficulty. But let us pray that even in the midst of our difficulty, in the, even in the midst of our distress, that the gospel would advance. That we would be bold in our proclamation. And y'all, in that, in that, we can rejoice. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. Thank you that you have promised in your word that your gospel would go forward. Our Lord Jesus, you have declared that nothing will prevent the kingdom of God from coming to bear. That you have said not even the gates of hell will triumph over the advancement of your kingdom. And so we ask that you would allow us, weak, humble, anxious and worried, scared and afraid vessels, that you would allow us to be men and women who proclaim not the good news of us, but the good news of you the good news of your gospel, that you would fill us with a boldness to proclaim your grace, your kindness, your love. So Father, do a great and mighty work in and through us, we pray. And all God's people said together, amen.